Pulp MX Network production. Thanks for all the support, Pulp MX fans. The Pulp MX app is now available for both iPhone and Android-based phones. For all your moto needs, shop at btosports.com and use the current discount code STEVE, S-T-E-V-E. And don't forget to click the Amazon banner on pulpmx.com when purchasing anything from Amazon. It's the Steve Mathis Show, brought to you by RacerX, presented by BTOsports.com. The original moto podcast featuring legends of the past, stars of today, season previews and race reviews, introspection, opinion, facts, and laughs. Here's your host, Steve Mathis. Welcome to the BTOsports.com RacerX podcast show. I'm your host, Steve Mathis, and with me on the line is a guy that's maybe done it all in motorcycle racing slash mountain biking slash uh, developing new products and somebody that's got a, a lot of stories and hopefully a lot of time to get through them. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, with me on the line is uh, ex-Honda uh, mechanic, factory Honda mechanic slash Kawasaki team manager, uh, Roy Turner. Roy, what's going on? Hey, how are you, Steve? Uh, oh, I don't know, just hanging out. Yeah, thanks for doing this for me. I know, and I don't even know, like, with you, where to start. But we'll, we'll I guess we'll start at the beginning, or, or we'll start with your, what you're doing right now. Turner Technology Group is the, the latest thing you're doing, and I guess talk about that a little bit. Uh, basically, it's my own company, and right now I'm uh, contracted with Fox Racing Shock, so I'm doing a lot of uh, development with them, uh, sort of advanced development around technologies that I've licensed to the company. Mm-hmm. So uh, I have, I don't know, about a dozen different patents that are licensed to Fox all in the suspension world. So that's kind of one of my core things that I'm doing, and then I have, uh, you know, I service some race teams. Uh, most recently, I'm working with uh, the MotoWorks ATV race team, which is on Can-Ams uh, with all of their motocross, off-road, uh, and GNCC efforts. So mm-hmm. doing a lot of just development and tuning and just general all-around suspension help for that team. And uh, I'm open to do work for anybody. Basically, I have offices and a shop up in the high desert in Victorville, and uh, Dino, data acquisition. And we do development on really anything, whether it's automotive, bicycle, motorcycle. Uh, we can do uh, suspension development and tuning for any of that for anybody who has a need and wants to hire us. Yeah, ttg.bz website for people who want to check it out. And uh, I got it open here in front of me and some real cool work, no doubt about it. Um, and I guess for yourself, you're an idea guy, right? You come up with something, you look at it from an engineering point of view, design it, figure out if it's better, and go from there. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, uh, suspension's been my core background for a lot of years, just mm-hmm. being in motocross so long, and I was probably more interested in the suspension side of it than anything. So, mm-hmm. you know, anytime you're interested in anything, that's where you seem to focus yeah. all your interests. And so just a lot of background um, through all of the years from the early 70 days in motocross all the way up to current in all different forms of racing. So it's kind of my interest and my passion and the, the thing I focus on the most. The the, uh, the funny thing is, 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 you know, 70s and 80s, Aftermarket suspension was where it was at a lot of times, and uh, you know certainly Steve Simons uh, had had his ideas, and and Fox had theirs, and everybody was doing well, and then it sort of died off. And in the last 
I don't know, five years. Uh, Fox suspension, Forks and Shocks. Olin's is kind of coming back. Like it's uh, seems to be a little bit of a resurgent. I guess Penske tried it, you know, in the mid '90s or so, but it does seem to be back a little bit. Um, it is, and I think the thing that's just so difficult in the aftermarket suspension world is just that, uh, especially in motocross, more than anything else, the factory suspension is at a high enough level where you can just, for the most part, you can take those units, do some tuning on it, and pretty much set the equipment up for any rider level uh, to, be, to be sufficient. And, you know, truth be known, really, you can probably take production stuff and make it work 95% as good as the work stuff works for the most part. So, right. uh, you know, that's why you don't really see it so much in the aftermarket in the motocross world, why it's so difficult for everybody as compared to what you just spoke about in the early days of motocross. I mean, Fox with their, you know, Fox Airshock was – uh, those were run on the factory Hondas and a lot of, of the factory equipment back in the early 70s to mid-70s, even up through the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also the, I don't know if, how much you've been paying attention, but Air Forks are back. They're back. Yes. <laughs> yep. Um, interesting technology. Um, have you had a chance to dive into them a little bit and see what those guys are doing or, or talk to people in the industry and figure it out? And what are your thoughts on that? You know, I talked to Ross Maeda I don't know, maybe uh, two, three months ago for one of these things, and he thought that maybe the ad- average public, average consumer doesn't need an air fork, doesn't uh, doesn't need the uh, hassles or the uh, can get a benefit out of it. Well, what do you think? Um, I don't know. I've got mixed feelings on it. I mean, basically, like Ross said, the spring fork is just easier. You don't have to think about it as much. You don't have to be as knowledgeable to set it up properly. And with air, um, I, I think people do get a little lost or a little out in left field where they can make the stuff work worse mm-hmm. than actually work better. So it, it could be a little tough, but it just it depends on how it um, you know finds its way into production and mm-hmm. how simple the adjustments are or not. But I mean, People want things that are new. They always want new yeah. stuff. And, yeah. and an air fork, it can obviously be lighter. And, you know, all the 450s, all the four-strokes could use to be a little bit lighter. None of them are as light as the old two-strokes used to be. So, you know, I mean, it's something new. And uh, I, you know, I think it can work okay. I mean, air springs are a little bit problematic in how they have a hammock spring curve, but there's ways to deal with that, and I think it's just a matter of time, and it'll probably find its way into mainline production. Yeah, well, they are production in 2012 on Honda and Cowie 450s. Right. Yeah, so well, it's crazy. I, when I said mainline, that I meant it kind of works its way through all the manufacturers. Yeah, it uh, it's definitely something trick. Like you said, though, the weight is, is, uh, is pretty good. So, um, all right, let's get let's get in the time machine. Let's go back because, uh, man, we got a lot to cover. Uh, factory, I guess, talk about how you got into being a factory Honda mechanic, uh, you know, way back in the day. Talk about uh, that a little bit. Well, that was kind of a, a fun story. Actually, uh, I worked at a Honda dealership in Lomita, Pacific Coast Honda at the time. I was a service manager at the dealership. I was only, I don't know, 19 years old or 20 years old. Mm-hmm. But some of my friends that I, I did a lot of riding with um, actually worked at Honda and were the people who got assigned uh, in charge of the motocross team when they started it in 1970 or 71. And actually, John R. was among that group. Who mm-hmm. He was actually the first technician 
on uh, on Team Honda when they started it, and it was just a beginning effort with Bruce Barron and the 125 CC four-stroke bike. They were doing a little development there in the early days, and uh, just knowing all those people, and John R. used to actually, they didn't even have a boring bar at Honda at the time, and he'd bring his cylinders down to me at Pacific Coast Honda to do them, and he was just worried to death that they had to be perfect, and he only had, you know, a couple cylinders, and he couldn't scrap them, and just really, really worried, but, uh, you know, I did a good job on him, and he was super happy with them, and that just all rolled in. Those friendships just rolled into them inviting me in to be actually the second mechanic on the team with John R., and we rolled for a few years, just him and I servicing, you know, six or eight riders on the team. Jeez, uh, humble beginnings for such a powerhouse, huh? Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was crazy days. I mean, uh, I can remember my first weekend there. I was working on some of the factory RC two fifties at the time, which were all titanium frame, magnesium cases. I think they were they were either one sixty seven or one seventy six was the weight for those mm-hmm. RC two fifties, and they were so fragile. I mean. The guys would bend frames like every second or third motor, and we were just basically scrapping titanium works frames because they just wouldn't last. But I remember doing that the first week and the second week in the in the big truck, and next thing I know, I'm in Hialeah, Florida for a national, and we're just we're on the road going wide open. Yeah, really, those are the early days of racing. Who are some of the guys that you that you worked for? Oh, gosh. Uh, while I was at Honda... Uh, Rich Ierstadt was my first rider, which we won a couple support class Trans AMA championships with him. Uh, And then, geez, who? uh, Carsmaker was my last rider. Tommy Croft was uh, one of the riders I worked on. And basically, we just, we all helped out. Uh, You know, we all Mm -hmm. sort of stood in with, with the different riders. And uh, I guess you were learning a ton the whole time, right? I mean, not only driving across the country and figuring things on the go, but also just learning how to, uh, how to tune a bike. Oh, uh, it was an education. It was, it was fun though. Um, you know, on the tuning side of it, carburation back in those days was always, uh, you know, it was a difficult thing. Changing weather conditions would affect how the things ran. And, um, if you were good with the carburation and we actually created a lot of different, uh, needle tapers and so on back in those early days to try mm-hmm. to keep those things humming. And, and uh, that was one of my favorite things, to have those things running clean. And I usually had bikes that were <laughs> up front on the start most of the time, just more than anything by just having them carbureted properly. I mean, Honda did a great job on mm-hmm. on all the motor stuff, but if you could carburate those things properly in all the different weather conditions, especially back east, you know, we got some just incredibly humid conditions that would make those things run really rich and really terrible. And mm-hmm. if you could get them running good in those conditions, uh, it made a big difference back in those days. Was there much, like obviously uh, I'm a little younger than you, so I think of the, the powerful HRC works bikes that you know we'll talk about later on that you had to go up against at Cowie, but was it the same sort of deal back then at Honda? Was it, I mean, was Japan sending over super trick stuff for you to try all the time? Like how much, uh, how much was it back in the day, uh, HRC? Um, yeah, I think Honda was in those days probably a lot more active than most of the other manufacturers with all their work stuff and just, you know, money committed to their R&D efforts and their racing efforts compared with any of the other companies. I know 
when I was at Cowie, you know, jumping ahead a little bit um, and managing the team at Cowie, Honda's budget was about three times what <laughs> we had to work with at Cowie. Yeah. And when you talk that kind of, you know, money, that money bought Honda a lot of things. And the biggest thing is riders. I mean, rider salaries are the biggest part of it. And so if you had money to have the top riders on your team, which Honda did, Mm -hmm. then you're going to win races just based on that, even if your equipment's only equal. So, you know, it's hard going up against that kind of money. Um, And when you've got Japan throwing down the kind of development that Honda was at that time in all those early days, I mean, it was... It was crazy. They had quite an advantage, not just with the riders, but with the equipment in those days. Right. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I think is, is really underrated, and Racer X did a, a pretty good story on it, was uh, uh, Marty Smith did the uh, GPs and the AMA series in one year. And, of course, this was when the GPs were, you know, significantly better than, than the AMA, AMA guys. I guess, uh, how much did you have to do with that? How much were you around that? And how much, uh, how, how gnarly was that, huh? Um, well, Smith, that was a good time for Smitty. I mean, he was at the top of his game then, and <clears throat> I was around it quite a bit and participated in all the U.S. events, yeah. GP events, as well as the Nationals. But Dave Arnold was uh, Marty's mechanic at that time that uh, was doing all the international stuff with him. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you left Honda 78, you said? 78, yeah, yeah. That's a funny story in itself, too, that yeah, not how, too many people know. How that um, happened? When I left, I actually was happy at Honda. We had a great thing going. I was working on Tommy Croft's bikes at the time, and we actually had him up and going, just nipping on Smitty's heels all the time. I mean, he was right there. He even led some events and beat Smitty a few times and was just coming into his own. We had a really good relationship, and Tommy was just devastated when I when I left, and I really had no intent of leaving. And it, the funny story about it is... Kawasaki was having their uh, Christmas party, mm-hmm. and, you know, we all knew each other on the teams, and right. and uh, Weiner invited me to the Christmas party, me and my wife, Barb, and uh, said, ah, oh, come on down, have fun with us, you know, we party good, which Cali was the, you know, most partying <laughs> team at the time, really, right. I would say, and so they invited us to the Christmas party, and we're just enjoying ourselves and having fun, and... Uh, so Graham Kirk, who was the VP of Marketing and Sales at the time, gets up to announce next year's motocross team. And he's going through all the riders and mechanics and stuff. And Weiner's the last one he's saying on this part of the team mm-hmm. and what he's going to ride. And the next words out of his mouth is that Roy Turner is his mechanic next year. Well, I hadn't talked to anybody about that, and Graham Kirk announces it at the Christmas party. I'm like, oh, my God, right. is this going to create some ripples? <laughs> I, looked, I looked over at Barbie and said, what do you think we should do? She goes, ah, these guys are fun. Let's switch. <laughs> it was that so easy. <laughs> that's a true story of how I changed over to Cali. Wow, uh, just just like that, uh, just like that, it was hilarious. Uh, and 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 so you went and worked for uh, for Jimmy. Yeah, so I worked for Jimmy for about a year or a year and a half, uh, and then they switched me. They had hired Warren Reed, mm-hmm. and they switched me over to Warren, and I worked for Warren for a year, and uh, then right after that, they pushed me up to team coordinator and then assistant manager and manager. That all happened in the course of about a year. Mm-hmm. And so from 80, I think it was 82 or 83 on, 
I managed the team, and actually Jeff Ward uh, was, you know, won the Golden State Championship in '83, mm-hmm. and uh, his first 125 National Championship in '84. So that was kind of the start of our run at Cowie, right yeah. there. Of uh, you know, some I don't know in the 28 or nine years I was there, I think. And since I started managing the team, I think we ended up with like 28 championships or something wow. during that period. And uh, Which, how was the Cowie uh, with Wino and with Reed compared to the Hondas? They were pretty. Were they behind them? Uh, how was the factory as far as being yeah. behind the riders? Well, you, how, you no, were how, was, how far? I mean, how how was it going from Honda to Cowie at the time? Like infrastructure. Bike support and all that was it quite a bit of di- quite a bit of difference? Yeah, it was drastically different. I mean, <clears throat> um, I wouldn't have expected that making the change that there would have been near the difference there was. But Honda's effort, like I said before, all the money right. they were throwing at development and uh, the equipment that we had, uh, as compared to Cowie, there was no comparison. I mean, Cowie. Um, was way behind at that point. Um, their equipment, their works equipment, to me, wasn't even, I don't know, 40, 50% of what the Honda equipment was. And that was, you know, that was a shock to me once I got in there and, and figured that out. I would have never expected there would have been that much difference. But there was a huge, huge difference. Well, now, as well, far as management and the staff, uh, Cowie was way better in terms of uh, just people being people and being for real. Where at Honda, I mean, it was, you know, the upper management there just thought their shit didn't stink. And, uh-huh. I mean, it was, they, they would come down on you for the, just the most stupid stuff. And it was it was tough uh, in those days just, you yeah. know, staying in line with all those expectations and the amount of pressure there was at Honda right. as compared to Cowie. They really hadn't won much at that point. Mm-hmm. And not only from U.S. staffing, but from Japan as well, from the engineering group, R&D group in Japan. I mean, everybody was so friendly and so open as far as trying to do whatever it would take to win. And, uh, you know, that was it was tough on their part because, like I said, at that time, Honda was probably spending three times the money on their motocross racing right. that, that Cowie was. So when you're going up against those kind of dollars, it's quite a uphill battle to beat those guys for sure. Well, hopefully you got a raise going to Cowie. <laughs> uh, there wasn't a lot of money to go around <laughs> in those days, I'll say that. Uh, and then what about how about working for Weiner? Was he as much fun off the track as he was on, as I would imagine? Well, you know, I have to say that in all the years that I was involved in motocross, whether it was as a mechanic or as a manager, mm-hmm. Weiner, Weiner was the funnest, most gracious rider wow. that I wow. ever ever was associated with. And that's saying something because you've been with a lot of guys. Um, yeah, I, I was with a lot of guys, but he was he was just great people he he really appreciated everything you did for him were you his mechanic with the paddle tire i was yeah oh geez yeah uh, good job on that you got that banned from, from ama racing um yeah that, that was a great story too yeah i guess you got, it was oakland and it was a sandy oakland track and you you found a paddle tire somewhere yeah well it was uh the second round of the year mm-hmm. and they'd never had a race at oakland before and I was back in Santa Ana at the office working on the equipment, and before I 
trekked up there. I just our PR guys were up there doing a bunch of PR, and I called them up and said, "Hey, what's the track like?" So I know what tires to bring. And they go, "Man, you're not going to believe it. It's like the beach, dry, deep, deep, loose sand." I'm really because we had never had a supercross like that before. Because mm-hmm. you know you need clay for the jumps, so they'll last and so on. So nobody had ever built a full sand track like that. And I'm telling you, it was you know, five feet deep of just dry beach sand. Yeah. So so when I was driving up, I just stopped it because we had done a lot of glamour stuff and I knew about paddles. So yeah, yeah. I yeah. just, I stopped at Dyco on the way up and picked up a variety of paddle tires and showed up at the race and got there and, you know, Weiner had never ridden a paddle tire either. And I got there and I said, hey, I got just the trick for this race and opened the back of the truck and looked up in the in the tire rack and saw him going across the tires with his eyes. And he just locked onto the paddle tire. And he's <laughs> like, what the hell is that? Yeah, yeah. He'd never, never even seen one before. I go, hey, you'll love it. With this track, you're going to love it. And he's just like, oh, man, I don't know. That thing's going to hook on the lips of jumps. It's going to loop me out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's yeah. Just, I don't know. I'm scared of that thing. I go, you're putting it on in practice. You're going to try it. So we put it on. He goes around the first round of practice, and he's flying around the track with this <laughs> thing. And, I mean, he's just leaving, yarding people because he's just hooking up so good with the paddle tire compared to Nobby's. He comes off the track, and we're bumpity-bumping back into the pits, rolling back into the pits, and he's going, I don't know. I'm scared of this thing. Just put a regular tire back on. So I did for the second practice. He goes out for the second practice and he's just like everybody going nowhere you know Uh so he come rolls off the track and i jump on the back of his bike and we're rolling back into the pits and he looks at me and he goes put that fucking paddle tire back on (laughs) (laughs) it was it was just comical and literally he whole shotted the heat let every lap whole shotted the main let every lap and this was you know towards the end of his career when he didn't have a lot of wins left in him Uh uh-huh and everyone was immediately the protests filed. Is that kind of what happened? Big, oh, big shitstorm after God. the race. Well, even the day before, yeah, everybody was. You can't run that. And I just kept saying, "Show me a rule in the rule book that says I can't." And nobody could come up with it, and right. every team was just up in arms about it because they could see what was going on. And yeah. you know, it was Saturday already, and nobody could get their hands on one. And <laughs> so, you know, it just it was one of those moments in yeah. history that worked out for us, and it was it was. Pretty fun. I worked with uh, John R. and Keith McCarty at Yamaha, you know, for years, and I don't think they ever told me that story, but I imagine McCarty was fuming. Very, very upset, uh, probably. <laughs> well, you know, he was working on Hannah's bikes right. at the time, and Hannah didn't get a good start, and he came up through traffic and actually got into second, started getting close to Weiner, and literally the chunks of sand <laughs> that were flying through the air yeah. knocked Hannah's goggles off, and he couldn't even see, and he came in after the race, and he goes, how the hell can you beat something you can't see? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, yeah, they were, all, they were all fuming. It was, it was a scene. And that it was, was it. Never, never to be run again in running a competition. No, and the the funny side about that was that after that race, of course, everybody went out and bought paddle tires and had them mounted up, and, you know, <laughs> right, we were right. headed to Daytona, which was sand, and yep. so all this activity goes on, and we get to the next race, and they had, you know, made a rule where you couldn't run them anymore, and right. everybody <laughs> just spent a lot of time. It was hilarious. Uh-huh. It was a funny time. All the shops around Florida got refunds for, for paddle tires. Yeah. Oh. Exactly. Uh, so okay, so you're you're working for Weinart, and then they they move you to Warren Reed, and then how does that uh, 
are you happy to give I, up wrenching and you know start being a little more of a coordinator slash manager? You okay with that? Oh yeah, I was. I really, I think, and a lot of people probably would have liked to have done that, but you know, I don't know how much everybody really aspires to it. But I did, and um, you know, it worked out. I mean, I I love the management side of it because you had a lot more control of the destiny of what you were going to produce. And, you know, other than the limitation of money, which even made it more challenging as far uh-huh. as the total budgets, um, you know, to do, to do, to be in charge of all the different things to create what you need to create with a team to go out and try to win races and win championships. To me, I was just all about that. I loved it. It was just mm-hmm. fun as could be. And at this point, they had already hired Jeff Ward, I guess, this tiny little guy, huh? Yeah, I remember Jeff's first race was at Seattle. And we had to, well, for a lot of years, but, I mean, he was so little at that point. We had to put blocks under his feet at the starting gate just so he could stand, you know. You had to hold him up, basically. He was Mm -hmm. so little on a 250. But he actually was running in second place in the main event until he overshot a berm and couldn't put his foot down and, you know, fell down just because he was so little. But, yeah, he was the little mini bike kid that was fast. And, uh, I mean, obviously, it's easy to see now. uh, I mean, Wardy's done just about everything you want to do. Did you see that in him, though, back then? I mean, were you like, hey, this guy is going to be one of the all-time greatest? Or like, when you look at his results and the points, he sort of had a steady progression. You know, eleventh in the points, eight in the points, seventh in the points. Uh, he got better as he went on. But did you have any idea he'd be the Jeff Ward? Not at that time. Um, you know, in those early days, he obviously had a lot of speed, and uh, you know, he was not you know, what he was in the end of his career when he was so physically fit. I mean, he was a, a young kid and just, uh, you know, not good style on the bike and stuff, but, you know, really too young to know how to be serious or what to do or to train. And at that time, you you just you kind of wait and see what transpires and what their mentality is and how serious they get. And you can never really tell at that young of an age. So mm-hmm. at that time, no. But, you know, come like 82, 83, right in there, and he won his Golden State Championship in 83, his first CMC Golden State mm-hmm. Championship. You know, he started started getting serious at that time, and you could see him just start filling out. And then in 84, he was just getting stronger when he won his 125 championship. And by 85, when he got on 250s, I mean – the guy was so physically fit and so serious, you yeah. could just see that it was going to roll for a lot of years, that he was going to be one of the top guys at that point. You know, when you talk to him, he still says that his 84, 83, he loses the title Johnny L. They pretty much go back and forth uh, right. the, the whole year. Um, 84, he wins the 125 title. And when you talk to him to this day, he tells you that that 84 Cali 125 might have been one of the best works bikes he ever rode. That thing he said was unbelievably fast. Yeah, it uh it, we it was a good year for us. 84 and then 85 on the 250s was a good year as well, but that that bike ran well and, you know, a lot of that to the credit of Mike McAndrews as well as a few of the other team members at that time. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> you know, Mike Mike put in a lot of long hours to make that thing run good, but you know, as did a lot of the staff, but McAndrews was wrenching for him at that time and um he was every bit as serious as the rest of us on the team and we just I don't know, we all 
really, really gelled well at that time. You know, everybody on the team did. We had uh, just such good team camaraderie between everybody on the team. It was like nothing that I ever experienced in the later years. Mm-hmm. And it, it just it just gelled, and that I think that was part of, you know, Wardy's success. You know, just everything fell into place, and as well as how serious he was about what he was doing. And it, it rolled for quite a few years for him. Yeah, no, no doubt about it. And there, and then there, there you were as a manager going up against Johnny O and, and the Honda guys. And it sounds like you know I've, I've done these with both Omera and Ward, and they had a knockdown, dragout battle. There weren't too many uh, handshakes exchanged between those guys in that those two seasons. No, I mean a lot of the riders these days are friends, and on the track they ride. Uh, totally clean with each other, and there really wasn't any of that. I know it came down to one of the last motos at Washougal, and and uh, Wardy only needed to get second, mm-hmm. and he was leading the moto, and Johnny came up behind him, and and uh, so Wardy just pulled way to the outside of a corner just to be out of his way and yeah. let him go and not have any confrontation with it because he was going to win the championship just by rolling in behind Johnny and didn't want to do anything stupid. And it just boiled Johnny so bad that he went clear to the outside of the track where Wardy was and just slammed him anyway because he was just so worked up. Oh, man, yeah. It, it sounded like a, like a good time uh, for a fan, those two guys. And, of course, you know, they were so far ahead of everybody else that, yeah, Wardy could get second pretty much in his sleep, right? Um, right. So as a manager, the 84-125 title – uh, although you mentioned the Golden State title, which at that time that was pretty good because everybody raced those preseason races, but the right, 80, they the, were big. The '84 title was Cowie's first in a long time, huh? Oh, absolutely. I mean, that was. <clears throat> I, I think they had won one championship prior to that. Yeah. And from that, and from that point forward, like I said, when I left in '97, we rolled in something like twenty twenty six championships. I think. So, and that was, like I said, we just, we all gelled like there was no tomorrow. Everybody on the outside could see it. And that, uh, that in itself almost helped to defeat the other guys in in a lot of instances. But we, we just gelled so well that, uh, it seemed like even though we didn't have the money that Honda had, we, we had a team that worked really well together and we were effective and, uh, we just rolled it in. It was yeah. great. Yeah, it must have been felt felt good for you as a manager to win it. You know what I mean? And like you said, to deliver their second ever title, first in years. And uh, right, eighty five comes and Wardy, he's the man. He wins. Although I got to ask you about the the super, the final round at Pasadena. Uh, Wardy riding backwards on the track. Um, right, Glover's still upset about that to this day because he got <laughs> penalized. He got penalized at the GP for it. Magoo got penalized at Saddleback. Blah blah blah. Glover's now still holds a grudge, but talk about that a little bit. Final round, uh, Awardy rides backwards down the back of a jump, and 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 the shitstorm that caused. Well, he didn't really. It did cause a big shitstorm, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, he when he went down, he he just about knocked himself out. He was really really dingy, yep. and just the picking himself up and getting back on the bike was surprising by itself. Um, but where he was on the face of a jump, once he got on the jump, of course you can't do anything but roll to the bottom of the jump and turn around. There's yeah. no way you can turn around on the face of a jump. So 
really it was a, it wasn't like he rode down the track for you know hundreds of yards backwards on the track it was the yeah. only thing he could do to turn the bike around and it was um you know to me it was a pretty cheap shot on the part of Kenny Clark who was the team manager at the time mm-hmm. but um you know we went through all of the normal proceedings with the AMA they reviewed everything and decided that it was not an infraction based on mm-hmm. you know all the reviews so yeah. all i can say is that you know it went through the normal procedures and um they didn't take his championship away for that. Yeah, yeah, no doubt he wins two. And it, and it was rough because that was the final round, and I, I think there was, I don't know, three or four weeks went by before they passed the judgment. So the championship, Supercross championship, was literally on hold to know who was going to be the champion for quite a few weeks. Yeah, wow, that would have been kind of a nerve-wracking time, huh? Yeah, I've seen the video yeah. of the incident. It wasn't wasn't anything big, but like Glover said, you know, they penalized him and Magoo and anyways, yeah. Um, right, right. Hey, I got to ask you, uh, growing up, I was a big Mark, Mark Barnett fan. Uh, that was my number one guy. And he, you know, the Suzuki bikes weren't very good and, and, and he struggled the last couple of years. So you hired him in 85 and put him back down to 125s. And, and I was up in Canada rubbing my hands together saying, this is it. The bomber's back. And uh, <laughs> it, it didn't work out so good, I guess. Just talk about that decision. Um, well, you know, first of all, I can't say enough about the bomber. He's another one that, um, he worked really hard. He trained really hard. He wanted to win races tough as nails. Mm -hmm. I mean, that guy was as thick as thick gets as far as being tough. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, same thing. It was towards the end of bomber's career. He had had a lot of success and really on the days he was at Suzuki and he won the 125 championship, he Actually, the Suzuki's were really good at that point, both the 125s and 250s. So he had had good success then, but uh, I think Suzuki was just not renewing his contract, and we were hungry just to get riders that were serious on the team at that point. Mm -hmm. We hired the bomber, and, you know, he was towards the end of his career, and he didn't have great successes while he was on the team. I mean, he had a lot of top two, three, four, five finishes, but never got back to his winning ways. But, you know, regardless of that for us, it was – Bomber was a – he was a team player. And, Mm -hmm. uh, again, I talked about how well we all gelled in those early days, and that was part of just having somebody that was a seasoned veteran on the team, having somebody that had been successful, seen success, knew what it took to – to be successful and when you've got that around he was inspirational to the other younger riders on the team as well Mm -hmm. and so it was even though he didn't win championships for us he was still a a good team player and a good team member yeah and would you have would would you have been billy lyles around this time besides warty or was there yeah yeah billy was there uh during that time yeah i'm trying to think about who else i can't remember but um and then when did you – I think Rick Ash was his tuner, right, for Bomber? Uh, still, uh, Yeah, he was for a few years, yeah. Still there to this day, I guess. Uh, talk about hiring Rick Ash and, uh, and all that because there's a guy that's, uh, you know, one of the nicest guys in the pits to this day, uh, a great guy, and, uh, and like I said, still at Cowie. Yeah, Rick is really good people. They don't come any better. There's a, a few of the good people still around. He's definitely one of them. Um, and really, it wasn't so much hiring Rick because he, 
actually was in R&D working for Goat Brecker. And uh, Goat was one of our, call it sort of R&D riders. He wasn't an official team rider at that time. And they were on the road, and Rick was his mechanic. And we just kind of all worked together. And then Goat ended up being one of the factory riders. And Rick just sort of rolled into being his mechanic like he always had been. And that was sort of the start of it back in the early days. Okay. All right. Yeah. Uh, Like you said, good good people. End of '85 comes and they uh, they make AMA makes a rule for uh, production bike racing, production bike based racing. Uh, were you behind yeah. this? What did you think about it? What are your thoughts on it? And how was it back then? Um, I don't know that anybody at that time was really for it that much. Um, you know, it was intended to try to make the sport more affordable for the privateers to get more participation, to get you know bigger gates, more riders, and mm-hmm. to just help build the sport was the intent. But everybody that was at a factory and had factory equipment didn't want to see that go away yeah, either. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, we liked all the factory stuff and not necessarily having the advantage, but just having such cool trick equipment in the sport. I mean, that was part of what we all felt was an attraction to the sport for spectators just looking at all this untouchable equipment. You know, it's right. like looking at a car or F1 or something. It's, you know, it's just trick Yep. equipment so um you know i don't think we really wanted to see it come to be but it did right uh and then both both ward and, and lachine ron lachine who you hired for the next year they both kind of told me the 86 cowies production bikes and eh, not so good uh is that how you kind of remember oh, they it? Went, oh absolutely i think that you know of any year to go to a production-based bike that was the worst <laughs> that we yeah. that could happen for us right and uh you know, the bikes get developed in Japan uh, in cooperation with some U.S. test riders as well, but they do the majority of the testing in Japan, and, you know, they can hit and miss, and that was a miss year for sure. Um, that was some of our worst equipment we ever had, and, yeah. and it was unfortunate because Wardy was just rolling off of a double championship the year before. Right. We just hired Ronnie, who was coming off of some of the best equipment, uh, the factory Hondas. Mm-hmm. So that was that was tough for us to swallow and tough to get through, and it really took, you know, we struggled with that all year, and 87 was better. It wasn't great, mm-hmm. but the, the equipment was quite a bit better in 87, thank God. Right. Uh, yeah, Ronnie said that uh, uh, three-year deal, a million bucks, uh, you signed him up. Was that before his arrest from, you know, in Japan or after? Like, did you kind of know – what you were getting into with him when you signed him? Well, no, I wouldn't have signed him probably if I <laughs> knew what I was getting into. We signed him uh, and uh, inked the contract, and uh, there were a couple Japan Supercrosses. There, we always oh, had okay. our Japan yeah. Supercrosses and urine testing at the factories and so on at the end of the year in December, and Ronnie went over with Honda, still on Honda at that point. He would start with us in January and got popped for pot going going in. Right. And, uh, you know, we got the story back and decided to stick it out with him. We had hired him, and uh, the factory was okay with keeping his contract in place, although it did cost him some money. Oh, did it? Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, it cost him some money. But, um we figured we'd give it a go and just see how workable he was and if we could get his cooperation and just see what would pan out at that point. Right. Yeah, he even mentioned to me one time he had some Honda forks and a Honda front brake, and he gave them to you and was like, 
here, here's how the bike should stop, or, or how's <laughs> here's some good forks, you know, back, uh, good story from Dogger. Um, yeah. And, and then, so obviously, uh, 80, Ronnie, you know, one of the, one of the nicest guys around, uh, I'm, I'm good friends with him, but back then, uh, did not work out in 86 form at all. He might've had his worst year maybe ever. Uh, were you wondering what yeah. you got yourself into? Well, it, you know, we knew our equipment wasn't up to par that year, and we knew that was a big part of it. And so that actually prompted us to continue with him, even though we had some ongoing issues with him. But mm-hmm. uh, to try to get the equipment good enough, we knew he was talented. And, you know, it wasn't just him that wasn't having success. It yeah. was Wardy as well that was struggling. So we knew it was the equipment. So we you know, yeah. wanted to keep him and wanted to try to mold him and do the most we could with him because we knew he was really talented. But, um, I mean, in the end he had, you know, Ronnie had a lot of good moments. I mean, right. you know, it was really sad. He was a party kid at the time. And, you know, a lot of, you know, when you're 16, 17, 18 years old and you've got that kind of money and yeah. you just, you're on top of the world and it's hard getting through to somebody like that, that, you know, their mentality is just party, party, party. And, you know, he is a, he is a good guy. I mean, I right. love Ronnie to this day. And although we had, you know, a lot of trials and tribulations on the team through the years, mm-hmm. you know, Ronnie, I have to say, he, he cared more than what most people would have thought mm-hmm. based on being such a party kid. Um, the problem was because he was such a party kid, you know, his training was almost on the weekends, really, because he yeah. wouldn't train during the weeks. Right. And so, you know, that affected his race results, too. If just, you know, if he had partied and trained, he probably would have been a lot better off. But, you know, even despite all of that, I mean, he had quite a few wins. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, he won, won the USGP on the 500s. Uh, he won motocross to nations in France on a 500. I mean, he dominated that, that race. And, you know, same thing. I mean, Ricky Johnson and Wardy was on the team that year. And, right. um, everybody was worried to death because supposedly <laughs> daughter was smoking pot while we were over there and it was going to ruin the team and we were going to lose. And, yeah. you know, Ronnie, through all of that, he ends up going out and just waxing everybody. I mean, he dominated, and those were 40-minute motos, and right. he still went out and dominated. It was just absolutely amazing. So, you know, I, you know, like I said, it was really unfortunate that right. Ronnie chose the path he chose because he obviously could have had a hell of a lot more success than he had, yeah. but, uh, you know, it is, it is what it is. I'm sure he looks back on it. In fact, I know he looks back on it now. He's told me several times, God, I wish I'd have listened to you back then, Roy. <laughs> hey, guys, thanks for listening to these podcasts. They wouldn't be possible if it wasn't for btosports.com as well as the other advertisers. So I appreciate if you just listen to this, deal with it, order some stuff from BTO, and then we'll get right back to the show. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the btosports.com podcast show. Please don't forget that BTO is the world leader in aftermarket motocross parts for the bike or body. You'll find deals like a Shoei VFXW helmet for $309.99, 45% off, or Smith Piston goggles for $32.99, 65% off. Your order can be shipped at anywhere in the USA for free. Or if you're not in the USA, we ship worldwide. Check it out at BTOsports.com. JT Racing USA is back to reestablish its deep roots in the motocross industry with an all-new, innovative line of racewear and casual wear. While bringing many of JT's strongest design elements from its golden years back to life, 
The racewear is constructed with the highest grade material on the market and has a technological fit, feel, and function that is sure to raise the bar in how motocross gear is being built. JT has relaunched itself back into motocross with the Pro Tour jersey, classic pants, lifeline, and flex field gloves in eight colorways with an assortment of men's and women's casual wear to add to its collection. By redefining the meaning of airflow, JT has incorporated its airline system technology into this collection and have launched their all-new ALS2 helmet in seven colorways to complete the rebirth of the brand. The wait is over. Well, it, it, the, the, comedy, the comedy of it is uh, you had Jeff Ward, who was, you probably never called him, never worried about Jeff Ward. And then you got Ron Lachine, who was just a, you were probably trying to be a babysitter to him. Like you couldn't have got two yeah. more different guys. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, now that you, you mentioned that as well, you know, we had the opportunity to hire Ricky Johnson at the same time. So obviously that was a huge mistake for me as a manager when you look at what Ricky's successes were during all of those years yeah. right there. I mean, he was definitely oh, the so man for 80, a lot of years in there. 86, you could have, when, yeah. So in 86, you could have signed, you had a choice or you were going after both of them? Is that? Yeah, we, we had a choice. I could have hired either one. Wow. And, <clears throat> you know, talking with Wardy, you know, Wardy was our top rider. It was important to me to try to keep somebody on the team that was talented, had a lot of potential, and that Wardy felt good about working with as well. Mm -hmm. And him and Ricky were just absolutely arch rivals at the time. Yep. I mean, you talk about two riders that <laughs> disliked each other. There, there were two right there that disliked each other because they were main competitors. So, um, you know, Ricky was a good guy. Would he have worked out on the team? Yeah, I think he would have worked out once he was on the team. Right. I think him and Wardy would have got along well. But, you know, I, I talked with Wardy a lot, too, and, you know, not in any way trying to put it off on Wardy because it was my decision. But, mm -hmm. you know, Wardy thought that Lachine had more talent and had more potential and would be a good teammate and young and moldable and so on, and none of us knew about any of his problems yeah. at the time. So. It was a uh, it was a choice we made and and had to work through for quite a few years. Well, it's like you said. I mean, uh, people might look at Ronnie as a failure. The guy was good for a couple Supercross wins, a couple national wins a year. The Motocross of Nations might have been one of the best rides ever, one one. And uh, yeah, like you said, even even as mixed up as he was into the bad stuff, the guy could still win a race. You know, so yeah, he, he could. But it uh, as a manager, yeah, I was. Always on edge with what was going to come yeah. up next. I think the worst thing ever is uh, we had a 125 GP in Ohio. Oh yeah, and yeah, that was a that was a tough weekend. I mean, he was the only reason we were there. We had put a lot of effort into it, and he had his girlfriend there from Florida. And mandatory sign up on Saturday. He was at the mall with his girlfriend. Didn't show up at sign up, and didn't matter what I did, I couldn't get him in, and so. We missed that whole race because he missed sign up. Well, yeah, and you were debuting the '88 Cowie 125. It had a cone pipe on it. Right. I remember some photos of it. Um, yeah, tough times. Now, the funniest story yeah. he told me, and, and I'll ask you for your best story, but he told me that his boat got out of the shop one day, and he really wanted to go on the water. You wanted him to test or practice. He purposely forgot his boots at home so that he could show up at the track and say, "Oh, my boots! I can't ride today." And he say he pulled that act, and then you said go to the dealership and buy boots. I'm not. I don't care. You're not leaving. Go buy boots. He said he went to the dealership, and there was no boots in stock that fit him. 
So he got out of the day. That was that's one of my yeah. favorite stories. <laughs> and that's probably true because I think he was like a size thirteen right, or something. Right. You you sent him to the dealership to go buy boots. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah, but for whatever it was worth, he got out of the day late in the day. Probably yeah. still got out, but right. he didn't get the whole day. <laughs> what was uh, the you know what was the best one you can remember? Well, give me give me your best uh, Lachine story. Anything like? Uh, oh my god! Well, probably missing missing sign up at Mid Ohio. Yeah, I mean that was that was definitely a biggie. And uh, you know, one of the uh, he, you know Ronnie here's the sort of warty Lachine story uh-huh. is. Uh, uh, we were in going to Binghamton National, and uh, Ronnie, of course, didn't have a license in those days, so I had to drive him everywhere on the weekend. <laughs> so we were, you know, up early, going down, I don't know, Interstate I-85 or something, whatever it is, in Pennsylvania. And, you know, we're not even awake yet. It's like 6 in the morning. Ronnie's riding shotgun, and I'm driving and just sleep driving, going to the track. We're so tired. So, Wardy decides he's going to scare us. He left the hotel behind us. Mm-hmm. And so he's practicing e-braking his rental car at, you know, 100 miles an hour. So yeah. he's going to come flying by us and e-brake us and scare us, right? right, right. So, you know, unbeknownst to us, all of a sudden we're, I'm cruising down the freeway at like 80 miles an hour, 85 miles an hour, and here comes this car sliding by us, just smoke rolling off the tires, right? right. And we look over. You know, we're just alarmed as hell, right? Look yeah. over, and it's Ward. He just got this shit-eating grin as he's sliding by us, right? Right. Then all of a sudden, you see him struggling with the e-brake, center pull e-brake. You see him struggling with it like he can't get it off. Well, he couldn't get it off. He'd practiced so much, I guess the cable stretched, and when he yanked it, it pulled all the way back, and it was tight or something. He couldn't get it loose. Mm-hmm. And he spun the car right in front of us on the freeway. The sheen's got his feet up on the dash, just hollering, fuck, fuck. And we T-bone Wardy square on the side of the car. We pushed both off the side, and the, the whole side, the emergency parking, had been all torn up for construction. So, yeah. you know, it's chunks, about a foot around of blacktop, just the whole side. And as we get into all of that, this all this blacktop's just flying in the air, just peppering the cars. We come to a rest on the side, 18-wheeler just locked up, sliding behind us. I mean, it was it oh. was a gnarly get to the track in the morning. Uh, and the best thing was was none of the, the riders could always just point at the manager and say he was with us. <laughs> yeah, actually, lucky me, huh? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I, I bet. Uh, hey, uh, yeah, Johnson. And so at this point, Johnson and Ward are exchanging titles basically every year. Wardy's got a bad ankle in eighty, eighty seven, eighty eight. Johnson, I can't. Maybe I got it mixed up. Johnson hurts his fingers. Like it seems like each guy has something happen to them, and the other guy takes the, the series. They're going back and forth at this time. Right. No, they were they were two of the top guys at the time, and they went back and forth quite a bit. I know we, uh, excuse me, um, you know, everything we focused on was how are we going to beat Ricky? What did we have to do? And, right. you know, I think Ricky had a little more success overall in those days on the 250s. Wardy had more success on the 500s, right. but, um, which is probably the opposite of what you'd expect. Right. But, um, that's that's kind of how it rolled, but it was some it was some knockdown drag out battles in those days. I'll tell you that. Hey, uh, uh, Eddie Warren, two years, won some nationals, gone, never never to appear again. I guess uh, talk about hiring Eddie Warren from Team Green and then uh, just letting him go. 
Well, he was one of those riders that, you know, came up through the Team Green program, had a lot of success, uh-huh. and we, of course, always tried to pull riders up to the pro team out of Team Green if they were showing potential, and he was one of the ones that did and looked like he could go places and really, like you said, he won a few races but never yeah. stepped up to, you know, being a threat for championships. And, um, you know, you're only going to keep a rider like that and give them a chance for a couple of years. And after that, if they aren't performing, then you're going to move on. Right, right. Uh, hey, Lachine told me a story, too. The, after he broke his leg at, at Steel City, 89, you, uh, you had a tryout for him in 90 for the 500 Nationals at Carlsbad and that uh, he was just in his throes of, uh, you know, partying and, and didn't show up and, and regrets it to this day. But uh, were you still going to give him another shot that next year? That was the plan? Well, you know, it was it was one of those things where, like I said, Ronnie had a lot of talent, yeah. and for us, we didn't have a lot of riders to choose from at that point. It was it was a period where a lot of riders were on multi year contracts and weren't up for renewal, and so we didn't have a lot of option at that point. Mm-hmm. And you know, it made the most sense to continue with Ronnie. I mean, we ended up continuing with him for three years. That was yeah, when he didn't show up. <laughs> it was pretty frustrating. I mean, yeah, I imagine we didn't know we didn't know what to do at that point. But that was a, uh, and I know he regrets it. Like like I said, yeah. he told me several times he really regrets not just listening to me at that time because I, I mean I spent a lot of personal time with Ronnie, really right. trying to pull him through all that and help him with that. And you know, I was at the intervention with his parents when he went into rehab and. You know, that was an emotional time for all of us. And, yep. you know, it was just it was yeah. tough times. What do you think? Yeah, it wasn't one of your – you weren't just a manager. Like, I get – and that's why I'm asking you questions about it because in talking to Ronnie, you weren't just a manager to say see you at the weekends. I mean, you really tried to help. You were around a lot, and you spent a lot of time with him. And uh, and that's yeah. why I ask. You know, it seems like you, you took a personal caring about trying to help him out. So uh, – I, I did. But it wasn't just Ronnie. I mean, I really – you know, there's there's a lot of ways to manage people, to deal with people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some managers use the fear motivational tactic and some use the kind approach. And I was just the type of guy that liked to be friends with people, know their life story, use as much as I could, you know, the friendship as much as I could to really motivate them and get them to do things and, you know, participate with them, whether it was, you know, doing running events or cycling events mm-hmm. or whatever. We did a lot of those kinds of things together as team members, all the mechanics and the riders. I mean, we were active with all that stuff. And that's what that chemistry is really, that bond is what created all our success in those early years for sure. Right. Um, and then uh, you had kind of a, kind of maybe another Ronnie Lachine in chicken, huh? He won a couple of regional titles, almost won that 90 Supercross title. And, uh, Maybe also provided you with a few headaches off the track. Yeah, not too bad though. I mean, yeah. in contrast to Ronnie, uh, <laughs> on a scale of one to ten, if Ronnie was a ten, Chicken was probably only a two. Oh, okay. He, yeah, he he wasn't nearly as bad. Um, he he kept his nose clean a, a lot more, and I think that was probably due a lot to his parents. I mean, his parents were real active in his career, and mm-hmm. they you know, made sure that he did the right things in public most of the time. And, you know, they really, really coached him a lot. His dad, Jim, was just super active in his career. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, Chicken was fun, too. Uh, 
always enjoyed him. We had a great time, and you know his rivalry with Bradshaw was another one of the yeah. you know monumental rivalries in, in motocross for sure. Yeah, no doubt about it. And I wonder how much different his career would have been had he been able to hold on in '90 and beat Stanton. You know, for that title, he led it. Geez, most of the races for most of the season. Yeah, he. Did. Yeah, he did. Um, you know, he was. It, it was funny. You know. Chicken seemed like the coolest cat around when being interviewed or mm-hmm. or you know, anybody talking to him, and he was. He was just he was really a great, just fun loving guy, always happy, always smiling, just had that personality you couldn't help but love. But when it came time to race, I mean, he couldn't even put tear offs in his goggles. He was shaking so bad. Really? And huh? wow. yeah, oh yeah. I mean, he would just shake like crazy, you know, and. Uh, you know, it meant a lot to him, and he was he was always just shaky and nervous, and uh, like he could never just settle down and be calm enough and confident enough right. in himself to to actually pull it pull the championship together. But um, yeah, he had a lot of great moments too. Right? How were and, those? Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Sorry. How were those bikes? Uh, the perimeter frame bikes—they were certainly pretty cool at the time. Uh, How did you think of them as far as your race bikes went? No, they were good. Yeah. Um, once we got on the perimeter frame bikes, they were we were back to having some good equipment then. Yeah, and of course your 500 remained unchanged for years, but it was a pretty good bike. Um, actually, that we why exactly I don't know, but I know our 500 cowies were you know a notch better than the Hondas mm-hmm. because, like I said, between Larocco, Kudrowski, Wardy. Every time any of our top guys went to the 500 championship, they would win 500 championships on that bike. Mm-hmm. And uh, during those seasons, Honda had additional staff over. They were working hard, doing a lot of testing, a lot of data acquisition on suspension, yep. just putting forth a big effort with their 500s. And no matter what they did, our guys continued <laughs> to beat them. So yep. there was just something about the whole basic design that just – was really friendly and worked really good, and the guys were just always comfortable and always went really fast on those things. And uh, and you, as you tra- transition from the uh, Warder years, you hire Kudrowski and Larocco, and of course, uh, uh, each guy wins for you, and uh, and then they end up uh, t- taking each other out at Redbud in '94. Good times. Yeah, that, good times. I tell you, that was uh, uh, you know when I talked about. Lachine and Wardy are having Johnson yeah. on the team. Yeah. You know, maybe Johnson and Wardy would have been good friends. Maybe they wouldn't. But I'll tell you, between Larocco and Kudrowski, you never met two riders that hated each other so much. And to really, have those huh? two guys on the team and be such rivals, that was that was a difficult time to, to manage. It was – you I didn't know exactly how to approach it. But, I mean, you know what? basically, it's, it's, yeah. it's weird. How, how was who – Go ahead. No, you go oh, ahead. I, didn't I, I don't get how uh, both guys are. I've talked to both of them. I know both of them. They're quiet, non-assuming, hardworking, you know, m- guys. I don't understand how that where the hatred came from. Where did it start? Just on the track rivals? Just I mean, I know at that Red Bud the- race, Kodowski, I don't know which one claims which one break checked it, but yeah, uh, somewhere. Um, on the track, that, that particular incident at Red Bud, I mean, they were the two top guys that year. Mm-hmm. They were winning most all of the motos and races, and it was no different at Red Bud. And that, 
created the rivalry because they both wanted to win so bad and they you know come from different parts of the country they're just different personalities they were all the things you just mentioned but uh-huh. the bottom line was they both wanted to win really bad and so just from that vantage point they really disliked each other it's it's hard to beat somebody you like mm-hmm. it's easier to race against somebody you don't like and that's sort of the mentality that they both had and that particular incident was a rough one um uh, LaRocco actually, he didn't purposely take Kudrowski out. I yeah. think Kudrowski thought he took him out. They were running one, two, and they were quite a ways ahead of third place. And I think they still finished one, two. But, um, LaRocco, you know, it's just a slippery corner, and LaRocco just couldn't get around the corner and kind of tapped him and slid his back wheel out, and he went down. And then after the moto, and that was the last lap, so LaRocco won the moto and then comes into the pits. Uh, Kudrowski was so pissed, he just, because it was for the championship, he yeah. just ghost rode his bike right into the side of LaRocco at like <laughs> 20, 30 miles an hour. Yeah. It was just. You know, he just lost his mind. That's all you can say. He was just pissed. What did you do? What did you say? What happened? Did you find uh, him? Or, uh, I mean, well, I just called them both. Well, first of all, you got all the cameras in your face. Right. You got AMA people in your face. You got all this commotion going on. They're both back in the trailer because uh, at that point, I think we were the only ones that had a semi. I can't mm-hmm. remember for sure, but... Um, I just went into the trailer and said, look, guys, this is how it's going to be. This shit's going to stop right now, period, the end. You're both going to be lucky if they don't suspend you, and we end up losing the championship on that. But the bottom line is, if I see any of this again, one of you is going to be off the team, whichever causes it. This is not okay. This is not going to go on. So just get that through your skulls. (laughs) I know you want to win, but this is over. Yeah. You know, that's all you can do at that point. Just try to scare them out of it. I don't know what else to do at that point. Right. Um, and, and actually, that's you bring up a good point. You were the first team manager to uh, usher in a, a semi-truck in, in the series. And, of course, nowadays, it, it, if you don't have a semi, you're, you're laughed at. But uh, talk, about the, talk about that decision and, and what you think of it. And, I mean, I know, uh, you know it definitely changed the way mechanics, riders work and, and teams and all that. But... That was a, a pretty big trend-setting move. Um, you know, it, it boiled down to you had a lot of equipment running around the country, and from a mechanic standpoint, they preferred being in a box van so they could run their own schedule, go where they wanted to work on the equipment during mm-hmm. the week. It was a lot more flexible for them to go where they wanted and do what they wanted. But yeah. from a team standpoint and trying to make a statement and to look like something special, I just flat made the decision, we're going to a semi, and I was going to put everybody in it and have better control of the team and, Mm -hmm. you know, do a lot better job of marketing and public relations for the team that way and just look bigger and better than everybody else. And from a cost standpoint, there was very little difference as compared to running, you know, four or five box vans around the country. Cheaper or or more expensive? uh, No, no, it wasn't cheaper. It was a little more expensive to run the semi around. Right. But, you know, in those days, I think that first semi-complete outfitted tractor-trailer, the whole thing, I think I only paid like 270 for it or something. And, mm-hmm. you know, these days you're easy, you know, half, half a million, yeah. 600,000 for, for the rigs now. But so it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. But, um, you know, like a lot of firsts that I tried to create in motocross, 
whether it was, you know, the accidental paddle tire or using headsets with the riders or yeah. the semi. I always tried to be innovative to make statements to make us, you know, look bigger and better than anybody else. That was, right. like I said, I love managing and I love trying to uh, do things first. And, you know, that was just, it was yeah. all fun to me to just be creative and yeah, the, try to uh, do things. Special. The headsets lasted what four races, three races. That was it. Yeah, and what's what's funny about that is uh, about the headset deal is Roy Jansen, who was the AMA referee at the time, uh, told me after they said you can't use headsets anymore, so it was actually a rule that you couldn't use it. Uh-huh. He told me that if anybody had protested us for that, which nobody did, right. that they would have upheld the protest for outside assistance. Yet they never came to me and said, Roy, this is outside assistance. You can't do it. So it's almost like the AMA was just stretching it a little bit to create some controversy, I don't know, or waiting to get us caught, you know. But I thought that was kind of rude. But the headset thing was actually a really good thing, although it obviously created an unfair advantage because I could talk to the riders while they were on the track and kind of clue them in who was where, what was happening. If somebody was going to get inside of them somewhere, I could have them move over. So in that regard, it really was unfair. Mm-hmm. But the, the good point about it is that there were, in the four weeks we used them, there were at least a dozen situations where our riders could have got hurt, and I kept them from getting hurt. Really? Huh? Um, just, yeah. yeah, just viewing up in the press box and on a press day, let's say, and um, no flagman on a jump, and somebody goes down on the backside of the jump and is laying right in the middle of the track, right. and here comes Lachine over, you know, up to the jump, and had he jumped it like normal, he'd have landed right on the guy and the guy's bike and obviously have gotten hurt. Right, right. So, there, there were a bunch of incidences like that where I kept our guys out of trouble. So quite truthfully, um, I, I find it hard to believe, especially when you look at all other forms of professional motorsports, I find it hard to believe that AMA wouldn't allow that just from a safety standpoint, especially in Supercross, because there's a lot of blind stuff, and you can view the whole track. So if you've got somebody that's spotting your guys, um, you know, can you keep them out of trouble and keep them from getting hurt? Yeah, I know. Uh, Coy Gibbs, uh, twenty in twenty eleven, had has a set. You know, obviously the NASCAR background for them, and they tried it. And um, I don't know why they're not using it the races, but it's legal and outdoors, I believe, right now. So, uh, but just nobody's back getting back on that bandwagon for one reason or another. But like you said, it sounded like it helped. So. Yeah, uh, it it there was nothing negative about it. I didn't think, and the riders loved it. I mean, they all said they felt like they had somebody, you know, an extra set of eyes watching out for them to keep them safe. Mm-hmm. They like they loved it. Yeah, all our guys loved. It. Hey, uh, quick question for you, uh, Mitch Payton. You know, you you were there when Mitch Payton was on Hondas for a couple of years, and then he uh, lost that support, and you stepped up. Kawasaki stepped up with some bikes and parts. I imagine, although talking to Mitch. You know, he said it started off pretty humbly in '93, but you, he, you know, he started, he kept his team going. Jimmy Gaddis delivered a title. I guess talk about getting with Mitch and helping his program up uh, through the years. Because look at it now, it's a, it's a powerhouse. Oh, it's the powerhouse in the 250s, no doubt about it, yeah. and in the Nationals. But um, 
You know, Mitch did an incredible job for Honda, and really, I don't feel like they gave him his just dues, his credit that he deserved for what he really did for them. And I know he was a little angry with how they treated him. So the door sort of opened for us, and I knew he could do a really good job for us and jumped at the opportunity to get him on Cowies and and uh, just start up the relationship at that time. And, you know, Mitch is, uh, you know, he's obviously been very, very successful. Mm-hmm. And uh, I enjoyed working with him. You know, he's a little tough to work with. Mitch is Mitch. But yeah. um, he gets results because he's tough. And, you know, that's, that's what we wanted. And uh, I'm glad we started the relationship up. I'm frankly surprised it's lasted this long. <laughs> it's crazy. He's still on Cowies right now. Um, in '93, there was but, no no hesitation on your part to try to help him out, though. Like you were you were for that program for, you know, that was sort of the start of farming out the the support teams. Yeah, no, I was I was a hundred percent for it, yeah. and uh, like he said, it started off pretty humble. We weren't giving him that much initially, and Mitch has a you know very good way of pushing to get more and more and more, yeah. which he really deserved, and it really was only. You know, how much we could support him was only a matter of my total budget, really. And had I had more budget, I would have given him more support earlier. But, you know, just with regard to the budget, I gave him all the support that I could ever give him because he deserved it. Uh, Safe to say, getting back to the LaRocco uh, Kurdowski time, safe to say, uh, Mike LaRocco Sr., maybe maybe the the hardest mechanic to work with you you had? (laughs) Well... I don't know if that's exactly the right way to put it, but I think um, <laughs> he, uh, LaRocco's parents were obviously a, a big part of his right. whole career. They were with him every step of the way, and his dad was his mechanic in the early days, and uh, Mike, the writer, always wanted his dad as the mechanic. Now, I don't know if his dad was pushing for that or if he right. just felt comfortable because dad had always worked on his bikes and he had a better comfort level with that because he thought his dad knew him very well. But uh, it wasn't the best situation. Yeah. Um, he, I, know, I know I did one of these with Mike, and he says if he could change something in his career, he, and it surprised me when he said this, he said he might have got away from his dad sooner. He should have got away from his dad sooner because in a way his dad just caused conflicts on every team he was at when he just wanted to ride. Right, exactly. And I think in the early years when Mike was younger, maybe that didn't stand out so much, but as he started getting older and becoming more professional and working harder and training harder and becoming more serious about winning championships, that all started surfacing because he was old enough to then see Mm -hmm. and understand the conflicts between the team. And, you know, Mike LaRocco Sr., he's good people. I would never say he's not. He is... He's just really, really good people. Mm-hmm. But it's not a good situation to have a father as a mechanic for his son. Right. Because you can't, you can't treat the son or the rider like you would treat somebody that the dad wasn't his mechanic. Uh, yeah, right, it, right. It's just a totally different situation. That, that whole interaction, I, can't, I couldn't interact with Mike Jr., like I would with the rest of the riders on the team because the dad was in the picture. Right, right. Yeah, frustrating. Um, and you sort of had that again with Robbie Renard Sr. 
and Robbie might have been one of the more frustrating riders for you, maybe. I know as a fan, he would have been because he just couldn't stay healthy, but he had tremendous speed uh, when he could put it all together. Yeah, and actually, Robbie's dad, I would say, as a dad for the mechanic, was a better situation, mm-hmm. but it's still a dad being right, the mechanic right. for his son, and that's not a good situation, but it was a better situation for them. But, uh, you know, you can't really pin the fact that uh, Robbie didn't have all the success that everybody would have hoped for. You can't pin that on his dad, I don't think. I mean, the bottom line was he was a fast rider, but there's a lot of fast riders that mentally don't think well enough, think ahead far enough, Mm -hmm. plan well enough to keep themselves out of trouble. And, you know, some riders ride just a little above, sort of call it the safety limit, and they find themselves in trouble all the time, and that was rock. That's the bottom line. I mean, he just wasn't mature enough in his in his approach to his racing. He didn't think enough, and he just kept getting himself in trouble and getting hurt. Does he, if you think of talented, the most talented racers you've worked with that maybe achieved the least, you know, due to injuries, due to, you know, a bunch of things, would he be number one? I mean, were there, were there times where you were pretty amazed by, by no. what he No? Okay. Ronnie probably would be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, uh, but, but he was very talented, but yeah, he just, he wasn't mature enough. That's the bottom line. Um, getting in, getting into the near your end of your Cowie career. Do you got to go or do we have a little bit more time? I know I only told uh, you. We're, we're good. Okay. We're good. Getting into the near, near the end of your Cowie, uh, career, you, uh, you might've made another, you made another shrewd move with, uh, getting Jeff Emig away from, from Yamaha. And that was one of the ones that worked out really, really well. And actually, um, <clears throat> I know Jeff's relationship with Keith wasn't as good as as Jeff would have liked. Mm-hmm. And I know he had some resentment for that, which a lot of writers felt like they were, you know, should have got more credit for a lot of things than they got. You know, that's kind of a common story. But in the case of Jeff, um, <clears throat> he was pretty adamant that, he wasn't being treated like he should be treated and mm-hmm. wasn't getting what he should get. And so it just, it worked out and I was able to hire him. Um, and we, I, I feel like he was one of the writers, uh, you know, through the years that I had one of the best relationships with out of all the writers on the team. I mean, yeah. I had good relationships with everybody, especially Wardy. Um, but I had a really good relationship with Jeff as well. And, and, I think that, again, helped his growth because we could work so closely together. Mm-hmm. He respected the years of experience that I had, the years of working with a lot of riders. He listened very well. He applied what he was being told. Um, you know. And he was a rider that was more on the party side than right. really trained hard all the time as well. But he trained enough, and he wanted to win enough. And it was, you know... J-Bone, uh, Jeremy Albrecht was his mechanic at the time yep. that we hired, and uh, they had an incredible relationship, and, you know, them and with, you know, Norm Bigelow, Rick Ash, myself, you know, we had a few key team members that mm-hmm. had been longtime Cowie people on the team, and again, that was a good formula there, and everything just worked out really well, and 
Jeff started winning a few races and started beating McGrath at a couple races. Yeah. And, you know, McGrath was the king at that time. But as soon as he beat McGrath a couple times, you could see the confidence was for real. And it just it was a new page in, in Jeff's career for sure. As much as the Fro signing worked out, uh, the Huffman, Damon Huffman one didn't. Although he did win a Supercross. And he was certainly uh, he put in some good races, but just couldn't stay healthy. But at the time, it looked like a real a real coup for you as far as getting a rider. Yeah, that was a tough one to get Damon signed up. And uh, he now you talk about riders that had potential but didn't get the results. There's another one right yeah, there. Right. Um, Huffman, he was like a machine. You know, I mean, they both were just gazelles on the motorcycle. They were so smooth and fluid and just looked like they weren't even trying. And uh, it was the same thing. Damon never quite made it, had a lot of injuries. Uh, I think, same thing, I think he was just young, not quite mature enough in his, you know, mental state. And uh, just, and, and he didn't train enough. He wasn't strong enough in all those early days when he got injured enough. You know, he was a he was a beanpole. He was a talent. He was fast. He didn't use a lot of energy. He could make it to the end of motos pretty well, mm-hmm. even though he didn't really train enough. Right. But he wasn't strong enough. And, you know, it's like, it's like Ricky Johnson. It's like Jeff Ward. It's like Mark Barnett. When all those guys were – Bob Hanna, another great example. When those guys were in their prime, they were so physically fit and right. strong that they – didn't get hurt very much just because they were so strong and they could avoid problems just due to brute strength. Yeah, yeah. And that's something Damon never really had, something Ronnie never really had. And I think that was a little bit of their downfall. You mm-hmm. know, they just mentally weren't quite there and they weren't, weren't uh, physically fit enough. They didn't take it serious enough. And, and that was a little bit of a downside for him. You talk about the radios and you talk about the semi-truck and uh, the paddle tire. You were responsible for another first, but I, I curse you for this, Roy Turner. You were responsible for another first in that you went to the flow green frames and plastic on the Cowies. And, and I was a privateer mechanic working for a Cowie rider, and I had to have that flow green. I had to have it. Uh-huh. Um, you know, that's uh, another funny story, too. Actually, um, within Kawasaki, the Japan Engineering Group, R&D Group, and U.S. side, um, I asked if I could do that, mm-hmm. and they all said no. Okay. Nobody right. would let me run that slow, fluorescent green plastic. But we did it anyway. We, I worked with Bill at a, Bill Baroth at a Cherby's. He had yeah. all the plastic made for us. And in secret, in the race shop, we got everything prepared. We got all the frames powder-coated that color. Just We made it happen and did it anyway. Went to the first Supercross in Florida and uh, broke those things out of the trailer. And it was kind of funny because it was on... Uh, press day uh-huh. when we broke them out and uh, there were you know I don't know I'm going to say 20 photographers in the pits right. rummaging right. around doing stuff when we broke those out of the trailer and put them on the stands outside of the semi every photographer in the pits were just rolling on taking pictures of those yeah. things yeah. It, 
it was a it was a big big hit, and it was such a big hit in the press. That's probably the only thing that kept me from getting fired. <laughs> well, I was going to say, what was the backlash, right? Like, uh, uh, I know I I went and asked J Bone for the paint code. He's like, we can't give it out. We can't give it out. So there I was taking my 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 frame around to different powder coat shops with a photo of your frame, saying, please match this. And the first two couldn't come close, and it was terrible looking. And I was like, oh man. Yeah, that was that was another fun thing. It was uh, the start of the fluorescent generation, I guess. Um, riders you missed out on over the years. You talked about RJ, and you went with yeah. Dogger. Uh, anybody else come to mind? Uh, maybe McGrath. You know, one time he was Team Green and, and looking pretty good. Uh, anybody else come to mind? Uh, David Bailey. Oh, yeah? Okay. He, he, he rode Cowies for a little bit while I was there. Yep. And uh, actually, I was – working on Weinert's bike at that point. So I wasn't managing the team, but mm -hmm. that was something we definitely missed out on. Um, but that's probably the big three, really, yeah. I would say. And, and what were the particulars of MC? Do you remember uh, what went down there? Um, you know, he was riding support class, 125s and Supercross, and, you know, he was just really low-key, and he just did didn't... Uh, didn't really have the personality almost that you ever thought would go anywhere. Oh, really? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. No, but then, you know, he was on Mitch's team and he started winning championships and, right. and, uh, you know, it was obvious he was going to go somewhere then. And at that point, uh, I was just slow to the punch and Honda had him signed up. They, mm -hmm. they did it early. Tell you one, another person you missed out on, uh, a great friend of mine and I worked for him for four years, Tim Ferry. Boy, you missed the boat on that one. I'll tell you. <laughs> well, we actually we actually had Timmy on the team for a while. Yeah, for a little bit. Yeah, uh, you know, after yeah. after you left, and in, in, in the early '90s, he rode Cowie's, you know, Team Green Team. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, but anyways, uh, so okay, so we're getting near the end. So, what happens? Why do you leave to go to Rock Shocks? What 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 goes down? Did you were you just burnt out at this point? Um, well, I'd been in motocross for about 30 years at that point. Right. That's obviously a lot of traveling, a lot of getting on a plane, going to a race and coming home from a race, you know, 40 weekends a year right. or in excess of that when you consider you're in European and Japan supercrosses and testing in Japan and motocross nations and all that. So it, uh, it wore on me and I basically just wore out yeah. on that much travel. I mean, I loved what I was doing up to the day I left. Yeah. Um, it was always a challenge because, you know, trying to win at anything is always a challenge. It's never easy, and I always loved a good challenge. But I just, truthfully, I just burn out on the travel. And yeah. uh, Steve Simons, um, Mike McAndrews, Paul Turner, all the main principals in Rock Shocks had been going for a few years. They'd been having great success at Rock Shocks, and uh, they needed somebody to head up all their sponsorship efforts for them. So they pulled me in for that, and it was just a good opportunity for me to do something different where I didn't have to travel so much. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we had a little travel to you know, World Cup downhill events and World Cup cross-country events and some of the domestic events, but nothing to the tune yeah. of what I was doing on the motocross circuit. So it was just a chance to change and do something different. And actually, 
Um, believe it or not, making the move to Rock Shocks, I probably came close to doubling the money I was making at Cali back in those days. Yeah. Um, I, I think uh, when I left Cali, I want to say I was probably only making about forty-five or fifty thousand dollars a year managing the team at that point. Right. Yeah. So, so, you know, back in those days, even that really wasn't that much money. When I quit in '97, I mean. You know, a lot of a lot of money at that point might have been a hundred or a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars. But right. you know, to work those kind of hours, I mean, we probably when you're on a team like that, you honestly are averaging somewhere between say seventy-five and ninety-five hours a week. Mm-hmm. And to work work those kind of hours for forty or forty-five thousand dollars a year, that's it's almost a slap in the face. You do it because you love it, because you're passionate about it. Yeah, no doubt about it. I mean, I, and I've been there myself. That's why if you do, if you weren't passionate about it, you need to get your head examined because there's no way that it works out. You're making about five bucks an hour, four bucks an hour. Yeah, um, yeah, that's about right. And also too, so this would have been so Rock Shots uh, mountain bike. They were coming stock on a lot of mountain bikes, and Rock Shots itself was probably thriving back. Then. I mean, maybe they still are, but at least when you went there, they were they were big. Yeah, it was uh, in excess of a $100 million company then in annual sales of mountain bike suspension. So mm-hmm. they were doing strong. How much? Did I you, mean, you can yeah. go ahead. Sorry. Uh, how much uh, How much did you have to do with the racing end of the mountain biking thing? I mean, were you a team manager for, for race for mountain bike guys, or was it more like support guy, come out to the races, hang out? Um, well, at in mountain bike racing, whether it's downhill or cross country, there are – thousands of teams literally i mean yeah. it's it, it, there's a lot of teams out there so all of the major oe bicycle teams mm-hmm. we sponsor so it's really interfacing with all of those bicycle oes and their cross country and their motocross race team mm-hmm. providing all the suspension support for all of those going out and doing testing with riders developing new stuff it was all about um, supporting all of those OE race teams. So would you actually? We we actually I at the peak there. I think we were supporting around 350 riders. But you were above the guy breaking out, changing the oil, changing the seals, and all. Like, right. That wasn't you. You weren't into that anymore. <laughs> no, I I was the basically the same as when I was at Cali. I yeah. was managing all the contracts between all of these different OEs and the race teams mm-hmm. and managing all the suspension support and all the suspension development, but, but not doing the actual, actual physical work on the product. Did you, did you miss maybe, uh, and this is something like I'm in the media side now, and this is something that, that I, that I miss, I think in the sport, you know, that feeling in your stomach when the gate drops and the adrenaline rush. And I mean, I imagine it was there as a manager there too. All those guys were yours and the competitive nature comes up did you did you did you miss that in the mountain bike world or did it was it still there a little bit no you still had it because if you were supporting all the top uh cross country and downhill Mm -hmm. world cup athletes when they're coming down the mountain i mean you know downhill mountain bike racing yeah those guys go over some big stuff and they go fast and so if you are sponsoring those riders and those teams yeah you still got the same feeling when they were doing their runs did you ever have any like fork DNFs? Like something breaks in the fork, and it's just like in a motorcycle race where you know the rider has DNFs and comes back and blames the equipment. Was it? Is it? Is it on that kind of level? Um, 
I would say as a whole, the mountain bike guys are better about that than some of the motorcycle <laughs> guys are. Yeah. But you're always going to have that once in a while. It's it's part of it. Can't avoid it. Yeah. yeah. And there's some, some riders who are going to blame the equipment no matter what. You know, like a Larry Ward was famous for, I mean, he could he could break the clutch in his motorcycle and DNF if he wasn't doing good or right. didn't want to finish right. I mean, yeah. Larry Ward more excuses about things wrong with his motorcycles than anybody I ever knew. Yeah, uh, you know, Lee, Lee McCollum, his old mechanic,'s got some great stories. Yeah, so you're you're always going to run into that. There's there's those types for sure. Uh, how much do you follow the sport nowadays? Like, how much do you keep up on it? Do you know what's going on and all that? <clears throat> yeah, quite a bit. I mean, we, me and my wife. We watch every Supercross on TV. We love oh, it. Oh, cool. We go, to, we go to some of the local events. Oh, okay. So, yeah, so you're still still involved in the sport that you had 30 years of, of uh, involvement in. So that's cool. Um, yeah. Well, hey, th- uh, thanks for uh, doing the btosports.com uh, RacerX podcast show, Roy. Uh, I feel like we could go on forever. Um, the, some of the stuff you've been involved with, no doubt, um, just epic, uh, epic tales, and you were right there front row seat for, for a lot of it. So. Yeah, thank you. Oh, you're quite welcome. It was a pleasure, and if you ever want to do it again, let me know. Yeah, we should do a part two. Um, yeah, I have to think of some more, good. Some, some more machine stories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'll have to put on my thinking cap and put a bunch <laughs> of notes down, so yeah. I'll give them to you before the podcast. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Thanks again. I really, really appreciate it, and uh, yeah, thank you for doing the show. Uh, it was fun. Thanks for uh, digging me up to do it. Appreciate <laughs> no pro- it. No problem. See you. See you later. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Steve Mathis Show. Search Pulp MX in the iTunes Store to find the more than 200-episode archive or get the Pulp MX app for your iPhone for the complete Pulp MX fix.